morning. All right, we are in week number 11, I believe, of 13 for our class on spiritual disciplines. And uh, so this week we want to turn to Galatians chapter 5 and look at the fruit of the Spirit. We want to look at the first four um, that are listed there for this week, and then we'll look at the, the next five next week. We want to talk about uh, cultivating spiritual fruit. So let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, your mercy and salvation. Help us to know your love for us more so that we can live in love for others and and display also the other fruit, uh, the fruit of the Spirit that you have um, that you have guaranteed really to be a part of those who are in the Spirit. And Lord, we're thankful for uh, the believers here and how they display that love and joy and peace and long-suffering, and we pray that you'd help us to do that even more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so before we look at the, the fruit of the Spirit, we need to think about Paul's overall message in Galatians. Galatians is a book that is very gospel-centered. In Galatians 1.1, Paul mentions that he was sent by Jesus and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father. So he came, Christ was given to us to rescue us from our sins. And he has rescued us from this present evil age. He goes on to say in chapter 2 that justification is by faith alone in Jesus Christ, not by works. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So, we are justified. We are declared to be righteous because of our faith, not because of our works. And then he makes a profound statement in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul's righteousness is not something that is stagnant. It's not something that just gets him into heaven. It actually does something for him. It actually uh, changes him. It, it, it allows him to, to die to his former self. He also talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in chapter 3. Um, and this is going to be important because when we get to chapter 5, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And so in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So here, Paul's talking about a a potential problem in the thinking of the Galatians who think that they can come to Christ through the Spirit, but then they're all set from there. We've got it. It's kind of like, um, you know, uh, like the Spirit teaches them them how to ride a bike or something, and, and now they can ride it. They don't need the Spirit anymore. Uh, but that's not how it is. Is it is 
how it is at all from the time that we come to Christ all the way to the time until our final salvation, that is glorification, um, that we need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to be working in us. And so Paul uh, is seeking to, to, to show that, and then he goes on and talks about our upward call. Um, and I realize now that I, I don't have a PowerPoint with me, so I'm going to have to remember these blanks because I don't think I wrote them in my notes. Um, all right, let me give you the first one here. Paul's message is based on the gospel's power to save from the present evil age. And then you know the next one. And yeah, right, it's not by works. Okay, and then this is what I was just talking about in chapter 3. Are you trying to attain your goal by human effort? Okay, good. Those are all the blanks for today, so we're all set. All right, so let's turn to uh, chapter 5 if you're not there already. Um, We want to look at the fruit of the Spirit, and we want to see it in its context. So let me read... uh, Actually, let me have someone else read verses 16 to 26. Greg? All right, thank you. I love how Paul contrasts here the works of the flesh or the deeds of the flesh, beginning in verse 19, with the fruit of the Spirit. And this is a good litmus test for us to constantly be looking back to. Which which category do we tend to fall in? Because, you know, a, a, a bad fruit tree is not going to bear good fruit. Okay, Whatever kind of tree that you have, that's what kind of fruit you're going to get. And um, so if you have an uh, um, an evil tree, so to speak, then it's going to bear evil. And that's the that's the point of, of this list. These types of things that, that are evidences are evidences of the works of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and so on. But if we are if we have spiritual fruit, if we're a spiritual fruit tree because we have the Spirit of God within us then we're going to bear spiritual fruit. And those are these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. All right, so let's look at the first one, and that is love. And what we're going to do is we're going to see what each of these is not, and then what it is, and then how to cultivate it. 
Um, because while it's true that the Spirit does cultivate these fruit within us, it's also true that, that we have a responsibility to cultivate these truths with, or these, uh, these characteristics within ourselves. It's, it's um, something that, that um, God works within us. Ultimately, the Spirit gets the, the credit, but, but we have a responsibility to cultivate these things. So first, what love is not? Love is not what our culture defines as love. That is, love is not tolerance. Um, love is is um, not isolationism. It's it's rather uh, how we approach others and how we approach God. And we often try to redefine love in terms of our thoughts and our tendencies. But listen to um, why don't we turn there? First Corinthians thirteen. Listen to how Paul describes love in 1 Corinthians 13, a familiar passage, but here we, we, we will see what love is not and what love is. Someone read verses 4 through 7. All right, so we see several things about what love is not. We see first in verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, and love is not jealous or envious. It's not covetous. Um, in verse 5, it says it does not, or the end of verse 4, does not brag, is not arrogant. It's not prideful. Um, I remember my pastor one time uh, in, in preaching through this passage when I was probably in high school, I think it was when I was at church in Romulus, um, he said, put your name in here and see if it, it makes sense. So instead of love is patient, put your name in there and see if you're a loving person. Jacob is patient. Jacob is kind. And and um, and it's uh, it's kind of convicting for me. And so you have to put your own name in. Don't put my name in there. Okay. But, but uh, we... <laughs> we ought to be people. Sorry, what was that? For the first, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so one of the dangers of, or, or one of the the constant pulls that we have against our soul is to become arrogant and proud, to to um, to boast in ourselves and in our accomplishments. And yet, love is not that way. Love is not seeking its own. Love does not brag or become arrogant. And so if we say that we are a loving person, either to God or to others, then that needs to be the case. The case. John describes the boasting and prideful attitude of the world by saying um, in 1 John 2.16, Everything in the world, the cravings of sinful men, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father but from the world. So here's what we learn from that passage in correlation to this one. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. So anyone who's bragging or arrogant is doing something that's not from the world. That doesn't mean that they are not from the world unless that is the the general pattern of their life. Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love does not act unbecomingly or is not rude. It is not impolite. 
And so we need to ask ourselves some questions. Are we considerate of other people's? Do we consider the feelings of other people's? Or are we selfish? Are we most concerned about how our needs are going to be met? Um, are we quick to impose our desires on other people's schedules? Or are we willing for other people to impose their desires? Or not? maybe impose not a good word, but maybe to allow other people's desires to to um to break into our schedule and cause us some some difficulty are we willing to do that because that is part of being considerate um what about the list of wrongs this is always one that that has really um that has really convicted me personally uh it says uh at the end of verse 5 does not take into account a wrong suffered how easy is it for us to keep a checklist of the wrongs that people have done against us, particularly those who are closest to us, and for us to use those things against them at an important time, like maybe a, a, a critical argument that we're having. Uh, we need to be right. We need to we need to make sure our point comes across. And so we bring up this huge checklist of, of problems. And um, I don't think love is naive. It's going to say later that... Um, uh, love believes all things, but it certainly it, it's not the point that it's gullible and that it do, it just completely forgets the past, but it's the way that God forgets the past. It is not to use it against them, not to take the wrongs that, that have been suffered against us that we have supposedly forgiven them of and to bring them up and to, to regurgitate them and, and cause more issues um, down the road. Love doesn't use those in those terms. That's that's how God thinks of our sin, right? He forgets it, but at the same time, He also knows that it's there, and He uses that to help to help build us. So it's kind of a balance we need to have. But the the general tendency is for us to to have this huge list and to to keep bringing it back up again. And then fourth, we see that love in verse six does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Okay, so. So Christians, do you love evil? Do you love sin? Or or do you hate it? Do you despise it when it's a part of your life, when you see it, the consequences of it in your life and, and in the life around you, and the lives of those around you, then then you should hate it. Love does not do those things. But what, what is love? What is love? Well, we saw in verse four that love is patient and love is kind. And we're going to, and it rejoices in the truth. The end of verse six, and so on. But turn to First John, chapter four, because love is probably best understood. Our love for God is probably best understood in our love for other believers, or best expressed, our love for God. So here's John putting putting love in very stark and and uh, it makes a really bold claim about what love really is because anybody can say that they love God. We all know people who say they love God but really don't, and we know that because their deeds are evil, right? And so here's John saying, here's the real test if you love God. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. And when someone read verses 7 to 14. Jonathan? Let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. All right, so I'm going to read verses 15 to 21. Mike. All right, thank you. All right, let's go back through now, verses 7 through 21. You help me. uh, Show me where the connections are between our love for God and our love for brethren, which is speaking of believers. All right, show me each time that it comes up, beginning in verse 7. Okay, there's the first one, verse 7. Let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. There's one. About the next, what about the very next line? Everyone who loves, is that talking about loving God, do you think, in the context? No, I think it's talking about loving brothers. Everyone who loves believers is born of God. So there's number two. What else? Verse 8, the one who does not, here's a kind of just same thing, same idea, just in a negative uh, statement. The one who does not love, their brethren, does not know God, for God is love. So there's three. Okay. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, good. God abides in Him. Is there anything before verse 12 that we missed? Or is... Okay. Okay, good. Verse 11. Okay, so here's kind of a description of our love. What does it look like to love? Uh, and and uh, maybe the reason for our love would be a better way to put it. In this is love. Why do we love our brethren? Because God loved us in sending Christ. Okay. All right, verse 13. Anything in verse 13 and following? Okay, nothing in 13, 14. What about 15 and following? 
15 is more about our confession of Jesus is the Christ. This is one of other uh, John's other uh, proofs that we are from God, that we confess that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus came in the flesh, that He was incarnated. Okay, so that that's important, but um, but we're trying to find... Okay, verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love. And it seems like abiding in love means to love our brothers, to, to believe, love believers. All right. Verse 19, we love, and the King James says, we love him because he first loved us. But I think that's an unfortunate translation. I think the New American Standard is correct here. Um, coming from the, the Greek, the, the him was actually added likely in order to clarify. But I think in the context, what we're talking about is loving brethren. The reason that we love other believers is because God first loved us. And that seems to be consistent with verse um, verse 10 and 11. All right, so good. Verse 19. 17. By this, love is perfected in us so that we can have confidence. All right. All right, kind of an explanation of love. Anything, uh, verse 20 or 21? Right, so there's probably um, the most direct way of saying what John has been trying to say throughout these verses. If you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar because that doesn't make sense. Whoever loves God loves their brother. So verse 20 and then uh, verse 21. So we have... Eleven times, by my count from verses 7 to 21, where John connects our love for God with our love for brothers. You want to see if you're a real believer? Do you want to see if you're growing in your love for God? Here's a very practical, tangible way to see if you love God. Do you love other believers? Jesus said this in John 15, Greater love has no man than this, than that someone do what? lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus did that, obviously, by by um, being God's only Son and, and being sent into the world to pay for our sins through his death. So how do we cultivate this kind of love? Um, how do we cultivate this kind of love? We should do it the way that that Paul cultivated his love for others. And I think we kind of got a a little bit of a glimpse into how John would say the same thing, and it is to understand God's love for us in Christ. It is to understand God's love for us in Christ. So how did God love us? He loved us when we were lovely or unlovely? Unlovely. And how does He love us now? Many times unlovely, right? We still sin against Him, even though He's bought us back. He's redeemed us from the uh, from Satan and the world and our own sin, and yet we still tend to go back to that. We're like um, Hosea's wife, Gomer, who was a prostitute, and Hosea married her anyway because God told her to told him to. And then what did she do? She went back, and what did God tell him to do? Keep loving her. This is how much I love my people. Okay, this is this is us with God often, and praise God that He doesn't stop loving us. And I would say to you that it's not enough for you to love believers one time and then once they
turn on you or once they do something that is against you. Remember, love keeps no record of wrongs. It is to keep on loving even when believers are unlovely. A friend of mine just recommended a book to me, and I'm looking forward to getting it. It's, it's, I think it's called Love as Christ Loves, and I can't remember the, the name of the author. But um, he, he says the basic point of the book is that one of the hardest things to do as Christians is to love believers because um, I think the way he put it was annoying believers because we as believers are not like each other. Okay, we, we have something in common. We have our love for Christ in common, but we all have different idiosyncrasies and and it's hard to love other people that are not like us. And And yet, that's exactly what we're called to do because that's how God loves us. And so as we reflect on that love that God has shown to us, um, then then it will drive us or, or build that desire, fuel that flame to to love other believers. I often think of Matthew 18 in the example of the un the un um, unforgiving servant who has forgiven this huge debt and he was unwilling to forgive his servant of a debt and what the master said at the end was you don't understand this connection here the love that your master had for you in forgiving that huge debt that's why you can't forgive this little thing. So if we can't forgive other believers, when they sin against us, then we don't fully understand uh, God's love for us. Here's what uh, C.S. Lewis says. He says, to love is to be vulnerable. Is that true? Does it cause us to be vulnerable a little bit? Absolutely. Love anything, he says, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or or coffin of your selfishness. Sounds like the Grinch. You know, kind of holds himself up in this little corner. He doesn't want to give his heart away because he knows it's going to get broken. But in that casket, I don't know that C.S. Lewis had that in mind, but, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable. That is, your heart will become unbreakable if you give it to no one. Unpenetrable, irredeemable. The alternate to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can perfectly, where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So if you don't want to, to experience all the hurt that comes from loving someone, then 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 you will be holding yourself up into a little casket as he says of your own selfishness and you'll find that it'll actually harden your heart even more and so the point is that that we as believers are people of love we love god how can you love god whom you have seen i think john says in a different part how can you love god whom you have whom you have not seen when you can't love your brother whom you have so this is a very important one. I'm, uh, I think it's purposely put there at the front of the list because it probably um, encapsulates all of the other ones and maybe weaves its way through all these other ones that we're going to talk about. But it starts with love for our brothers. Any questions, comments?
All right, let's try to get the, through these last three um, quickly. Joy is next. Love, joy, peace. So joy is not simply the absence of trouble or pain or suffering. Our, our world would define uh, joy or happiness in this way, that it is a freedom from trouble and pain. It's the Joel Osteen type of, of, of joy uh, or happiness. Um, that you know you, you can you can get away from all these troubles just by thinking positively. See, joy is is not so much happiness as it is contentment, as Phil Reichen says. Joy is the ability to take good cheer from the gospel. It's not therefore a spontaneous response to some temporary pleasure. It doesn't depend on circumstance at all, right? Can we have joy despite our circumstances? Can we have joy in in great um, in great prosperity? Absolutely. Can we have joy in great poverty? Yes, we can. See, the circumstances are not wh- where our joy uh, rests. It's not, it do- it's not determined by our circumstances. It doesn't shift with our circumstances. The only thing it may do is during the difficult circumstances, it causes our joy to be even more because we have it in the proper thing. So joy is not based on our circumstances. It's not a freedom from pain and suffering. Um, so we have to guard, guard our minds against that type of thinking that our world offers. What What is joy then? Matthew Henry, uh, one of the Puritans, I believe, des- described joy in this way. A constant delight in God. Here's what joy is. A constant delight in God. So God doesn't change. So we constantly can be delighting in Him. But our circumstances, they are going to change. And so if our if our joy is dependent upon our circumstances, then our joy is going to be changing up and down with the circumstances of life. But if our joy is in God, the circumstances don't change our joy. In fact, true joy is a constant delight in God. That means that even in times of sorrow, we can have Joy. Now we're going to talk this morning. Uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter three, verse one, "Rejoice in the Lord." And he doesn't really expound that on that too much in chapter three. He's going to do that in chapter four. But in chapter three, he says it. And so I'm going to make a a quick comment about about that. The joy is not the plastic smile type idea. We have to always be coming into the church with this smile on our face and as if everything's going okay. There is a time for sorrow. There's a time to to be going through life and really struggling with the the things of life, and yet through it all we can still have joy. Joy doesn't mean smile. Uh, joy means constantly delighting in the end, knowing, you know, what's going to happen in the end. Um, you know, we we know we, because we've read the last page what's going to happen, and so we can have joy. We we know that while it, there is sorrow now, there will be joy. All right, there will be there will be a perfect joy, I should say. Right now, there should be still joy. So, how do we cultivate joy? Um, I think it's uh, Martin Lloyd Jones that says, "Talk to yourself instead of listening to yourself." Okay, do you know what he's talking about when he's saying that? Talk to yourself instead of listening to yourself. You know, our our minds are constantly telling us what we think. You know, it's like the the old um, Dove chocolate 
little pithy saying in there, follow your heart, it will never lead you astray. Well, actually, your heart leads you astray all the time. That's the problem. Our hearts are, are wicked and we should not follow our hearts. We shouldn't listen to ourselves. Instead, talk to ourselves in the sense that we tell them, we tell ourselves what the Word of God says. Here's the truth. I'm not going to listen to this nonsense that tells me that that um, that I can't have joy in this kind of circumstance because my society has told me that. Instead, we set our hope, our confidence in Christ and in Christ alone. Um, Paul says it this way in Romans 15:13. He says, "May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow." with the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we think about it, peace, uh, I'm sorry, joy comes from God. God is a joyful God, and we can only be joyful when we think on the things of Christ. We can only be properly joyful. Uh, And joy is something that is not meant to be individual only. Okay, when we are joyful we should share that joy with others right rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep there there is something to be shared in our in our joy but there is also a sense in which our joy is not complete and that we are still await the time when that joy is is um is made complete through our final transformation all right so love and joy any questions comments Number three is peace. Third one that Paul lists here as the fruit of the Spirit. Something that should mark our lives as Christians is peace. Now, in our world, we think of peace. We think of the cessation of war and strife, that there are no troubles. Um, But peace, and certainly peace does include some of that. When, When Christ comes to bring peace, He's actually going to bring war in order to make peace. But but uh, during the time of the Millennial Kingdom, it will be a time of great peace. But it's actually more active than that. Um, it's not simply a magically erasing of all of the, the, the troubles in life. Jesus Christ certainly is the, the Prince of Peace, and He bled for peace, and He will fight for peace. But peace is so much more than just the cessation of war. Peace ultimately comes from, turn to Romans chapter 5, Peace, peace ultimately comes from a right relationship with God. A right relationship with God. So, peace is something that we have when we come to Christ and it's something that we continue to strive for. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace into which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, okay, so you kind of see that idea of war or strife between us and God, we were reconciled, made to be at peace, to God, through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Peace and reconciliation are close cousins. They, they, they mean very much the same thing. It's being brought into a right relationship. It's, it's having the things that were, were keeping us apart uh, removed from us. They're now separated. The things that caused us to be hated by God has been removed because God's wrath has been satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ. And the things that caused us to hate God has been removed because God has changed our hearts. And so we are reconciled, us to God. How do we cultivate peace? We cultivate peace by setting our minds on the things of Christ. Set your mind on the love of God. Meditate on this passage here, Romans 5, 1-11. through The reconciliation that while we were ungodly, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, verse 8 says, Christ died for us. <clears throat> Peace is a, a quietness of soul, very similar to joy. A quietness of soul because of the reconciliation that we have from God. Are there any questions on love, joy, or peace? All right, let's move to patience. Number four, patience or long-suffering. Now, an appearance of long-suffering is not necessarily patience. So what is what patience is not? One... Uh, one author, John Sanderson, writes this, Some of us are by nature more insensitive to criticism than others and hence have an appearance of long-suffering or patience. Some, by ordinary human calculation, will endure a temporary hardship to gain a long-range advantage. Okay, so when we tend to think about patient people, we tend to about think about people who have a, a longer fuse, right? The opposite of patience would be someone who has a short fuse. At the change of circumstances, they're just all fiery and, and yelling and, and, and not happy with their circumstances and so on. But we tend to say, well, the, well, then the opposite of that person would be a patient person, someone who can endure those kinds of things. And what this author is saying, and I think rightfully so, is that some of us by nature tend to have that insensitivity to criticism. We kind of just let that roll off our backs or even to the difficulties that come in life, we tend to have a longer fuse and so we don't. it doesn't bother us as much. But that's not necessarily patient. He says that the guy that, that waits until everyone on his flight exits before he gets out of his seat is not necessarily a patient man. Um, the motive of patience, that is, in us as believers is the gospel itself and and for us to divisibly display the effect of the gospel in our actions and in our attitudes. So some of you may uh, 
struggle with just an attitude of unconcern, uh, a lack of concern. But I would think most of us actually struggle with um, blowing our tops, that is, being uh, quick to be angry over situations. And so we need to, to think about it in these terms. But both of them obviously need work. We, no matter which category you would put yourself in, we both need work. All right. So what is patience? Patience is the idea of long-suffering or steadfastness. It's, it's um, being able to, to see through to the end. What, what, what is the end goal here? What is God trying to accomplish through this? And it's very close to what we've just talked about with joy and peace. It's having our mind set on the right thing, and because of that, we can endure some of these smaller things. We can endure some of the things that we say, well, that doesn't look like it's this whole situation is moving in the direction that I think it needs to go. And so we can endure some of those things and because we, we recognize God's control over the situation. Patience should have an effect on um, bringing thankfulness to our hearts. This is why Paul could command believers to be thankful in everything. Right? How could, how could we possibly be thankful in everything unless we have an attitude of, I would say, love and joy and peace and patience? If we have these sorts of characteristics that are a part of us and are growing, then we can actually be thankful in our circumstances. That ultimately, right, our, 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 um, our patience rests in, in our relationship with God we would be far worse if we were unbelievers with regard to our attitude to certain circumstances. So how do we cultivate patience? Patience is a lot. uh, It's very much about perseverance. And that is one of the things that, that we as believers are required to do. In fact, we will do is that we will persevere. It's, it's exercising endurance in the face of wrongs that have been done to us. It's not taking vengeance on other people. It's not guilting people into doing what we want them to do. Instead, it's recognizing who is on the throne and, and who is in control. Our patience toward one another is largely a reflection of whether we are patient towards God. Sometimes we expect God to do certain things in our lives and we're not happy with His timing. And so we, we tend to go out in front of Him and, and handle the situation on our own. But, but, um, but that's why it's so important for us to cultivate this, this fruit of patience in our lives because it's, it's going to affect how we treat God. Whether we're going to persevere with God or not. Ephesians 4.2 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So there the idea of patience is connected to bearing with one another. So is there something that, that has to be borne on our shoulders because someone else is not moving in the direction that we want them to go or at the speed that we want them to go? Then we need to be patient with them because that's part of showing love to them. God moves people um, sometimes in different at different times or different speeds, and so sometimes we just have to wait for God to work in that person's heart, and and we need to to endure with patience, recognizing that God's ultimately in control. All right. Well, 
uh, hopefully this was uh, helpful in thinking through some of these things that should should be a part of our lives. Uh, we should be people who are producing these types of things. These are things that the Spirit produces in believers. And so if if there are some major inconsistencies with our lives compared to this list, then we need to work on those, work on cultivating those, asking the Spirit to help us. And if we see that we are, for the most part, consistent with these four things, then we need to certainly ask God for humility and also mercy to help us grow even more. Any questions or comments on the first four? Trish. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point because that's that's uh that's really the point of love. A lot of times we're going to give and not receive back. I mean if you think about it in terms of God, what does he get back from us? Can we ever repay God for the love that he's shown to us? We can't repay him. Um certainly we we want to live our lives in glory to him and honor him as much as we can with our lives, but but ultimately we can't repay him for what he did for us. He gave His Son so that we could have life. So yeah, that's helpful. Love is about giving without the thought of return. And uh, so in that term, in that sense, charity is a great word to describe it. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. We'll, we'll look at the next five uh, next week. Father, we're thankful for the fruit of the Spirit that You have produced within each one of us. I'm thankful for the evidence that, that I see within our church and... Um, and I pray that you would continue to cultivate that even more. But, Lord, as we went through these, I could see inconsistencies in my life in each of them and need work to grow. And I, I assume that's the case for each person here. So I pray that you would help us to uh, recognize our, our, uh, our lack of conformity to these things and seek to grow in them even more. And we know that ultimately, in the end, as we seek to cultivate these fruit, that, that we can't take the credit. It's all uh, a result of the Spirit working within us. Lord, help us not to be people who are described by the de- deeds of the flesh, but those who are described by the fruit of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.